One and all, welcome back to the latest and greatest edition of Nick's Nonfiction. I'm your host, comic Nick Munez. Today we've got an anthology slung together by Jeff Dice to this thing's called The Anatomy of the Crash. It's time to take a look on the inside why our seemingly healthy economy crashes every eight years. This thing is up to date, the 2020 crash we're talking about. Everything from free market crypto sales to socialist stimuli packages. This is not a battle of capitalism versus communism. Today, we debunk corporatism. Up until 1945, did you know there were $500 bills, $1,000, $10,000 bills in circulation? You could make a stripper's year with one toss. 10 bands, 1,000 bands, 10,000 bands. Fucking man, let's just not even discuss it, man. They had all of these bills up until 1969 they were taken out of circulation, you know, to cut down on organized crime. Now the mafiosas wear suits and shoot themselves into space, billionaire space race. Did you know a $100 bill today has a $15 purchasing power it would have in 1969? Why is the work of an economist and a plumber so similar in nature? Both of them handle gross domestic product. Today we go deep on Keynesian economics, the leading ideology for our money that has us printing $10 trillion a year and over $25 trillion in debt. Why not just be a billion trillion gajillion dollars in debt at that point? We're going to look at the trends today as a true economist should. These numbers could be anything. What are we moving towards? You can't date an economist. My girlfriend's always going, well, how do you feel about this? I'm going relative to what? We need a benchmark of comparison, and that is where us Austrian economists come in. The last chapter is called What Would Mises Do? He started this whole Mises Institute. The guy fought in World War I, was ran out of Austria by the Nazis, and then came to America to try to defeat socialism. True hero, all these books are free. It's not some like pay-to-play type of scam going on here. It's just about sound money. Biden and Trump are up there overing over a $1,400 stimulus package or $2,000, saying the R's and the D's are both on this Keynesian bullshit. Today's R's are yesterday's D's. You look at a Obama guy is basically preaching Reaganomics. We gotta look a little bit outside the system, read the bio for the show. It's not an exaggeration. You're never gonna birth a new idea from two complacently failing systems. To put it simply, we just need a new accountant. These guys at Capitol Hill, they're just fudging the ledgers. Uh, two plus two is 22, right? In 10 years, this book is going to be seen as our generation's nickel and dimed. What about the 08 crash? This one's much more interesting, though, with essays titled Why the Government Hates Cash, The Fight Against Crypto. Cool stuff ahead. Might be light on the laughs by comparison. That is unless you're like me and find it funny how comfortable our government is with mistreating us, then in that case, this one is a side splitter. Before we get this thing underway, we're going to throw it over to a word from our sponsors. Thank you for choosing Taco John's. My name is Evan. Would you like to try the two for four fish tacos tonight? Hell no. Alright, you can go ahead and order whenever you're ready. Alright, can I get the two for four fish tacos? No.
Welcome back, everybody. Make sure you're supporting your local international burger spot. Uh, make sure you're checking out the Patreon page, The Hikes. I can't hype it up enough. It's bi-coastal now. These things are getting to the next level. And then also on the Patreon page, we just had the Seven Wonders of the World. Go learn about giant phallic-shaped monuments. The author here, as we said, Jeff Deist, he put together a potpourri twilight-like anthology of libertarian writers. How many libertarians does it take to change a light bulb? Zero. The free market will take care of it. All under the hood of the Mises Institute wing of libertarianism. It's one of the only facilities out there pushing for sound money. And as I said, this book is free. Something's fishy here. A libertarian giving something out for free? What do you call... An economist who hates to spend a lot of money on his books. An economizer. We're going to have much more of these institute books for free. I'm thinking the $100 gold bill. It's a good theme. Good exercise for the ideology. And you're going to get some of that right after another advertisement. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, buckle up. Chapter 1, Are Central Banks Nationalizing the Economy? By Daniel LaCalle. The Financial Times recently ran an article that states, The leading central banks now own a fifth of their government's total debt. As we learned recently from Swiped, Spencer Bacchus, leader of the Housing Banking Committee, he openly admitted federal litigation takes their orders from banks. Once again today, don't go, capitalism is evil. The government is controlling the banks. And I mean, the government is controlling Twitter. The government, DARPA pays for Amazon and all this Tesla BS. I don't really have to try to baby everybody today. You gotta take a step up. <laughs> We're looking at the 50 stars on our flag. Like the Financial Times article just said, leading central banks now own a fifth of the government's debt. So 10 of those 50 stars on our Stars and Stripes are owned by international financial institutions. We just had the Joseph Stiglitz book, the guy who worked for the World Bank. They own the Federal Reserve. It is a international organization, so they are one of these organizations in the 10%. I need to make abundantly clear this is not the fault of capitalism. You have to have all these United Nations propping up these world banks for it to work. Another stat from this Financial Times article, without any recession or crisis, international central banks are purchasing more than $200 billion a month in government and private debt led by the ECB and the Bank of Japan. So notice I'm saying international banks, not just to cover the Fed and the WBO but the European Central Bank and the Bank of Japan own about 10 stars on the American flag as well. And don't feel bad, because look at the Japanese flag as a giant pie chart. 
we own 50% of their flag. The point here is that us, the European Union, we buy up each other's debt to make each other sound more legit. Look, those guys are in debt as well, but we're in debt $10 billion also, so it kind of just evens out. Another fact here, the ECB owns 9.2% of the European corporate bond market and more than 10% of the main European country's total sovereign debt. That latter half is the most important. So the European Central Bank, the Fed of Europe, owns 10% of all of their biggest countries, Germany, France. Maybe that's why all the French people are in the streets like the intro for the show today. See, even off the bat, how we're dealing with a global economy, everyone's propping up each other's house of cards. The Federal Reserve, more accurately, in the U.S. owns more than 14% of the U.S. total public debt. So our flag example, the Fed owns seven stars. Think about Pepsi alone owns a half a star. And the Koch brothers, maybe the Fanta brothers, I don't know about, they own five to ten stars. You're wondering, how many stars do the people own? I guess we got like one sliver of one point of one of the stars. <laughs> Just talking like a stockholder here. We got a tiny seat at the table. Daniel, the author of this essay called The Current Result, a zombified economy with perpetual imbalances, weak money velocity, and incentivized debt. Money is going back and forth between banks instead of exchanging hands between the people. Name of the chapter, Are Central Banks Nationalizing the Economy? Bitch, they're globalizing it. <laughs> Getting into mid-chapter here, more theoretical rather than exact examples. The government issues massive amounts of debt and cheap money, causing real wages to fall, purchasing power and currencies to fall, and then the real cost of living is driven up. Like we read um, Fast Food Nation here on the program, and if there wasn't that cacophony of programs propping up McDonald's, the real price of beef would settle in the market. Think about how much probably fake meat McDonald's is going through. All that would be back in the grocery stores. The higher cuts are worth less. Basic supply and demand. Daniel's example here is that real money would be circulating if banks weren't creating hormonal money like the fake meat. The buyouts and the banknotes are the exact comparison to just injecting uh, fake protein into the populace. <laughs> Not to mention, if we're going with the McDonald's example here, half the money spent at these chains is EBT, monopoly money. On the window of Jack in the Box, it says, we accept food stamps. So it's fake money paying for fake food at a fake business. <laughs> what is the actual value being produced here? And let me just finish off this deteriorating example here. On top of that, Nebraska just launched a meat passport program <laughs> never touch another man's meat you've noticed your dollar not going as far at the grocery store this is just a bigger allegory for inflation something really interesting said in this chapter was a nation's productivity isn't measured by their gdp anymore a nation is seen as productive by how much debt they incur <laughs> Completely upside down is why I'm laughing. This is like, up is down. Debt is actually growth. 
on the books, yeah, it looks like our stock market is booming because Bank of America is a huge corporation, but the people are in debt to BOA from their DoorDash accounts. Like a third of small businesses, this book was about 2020, closed their doors. That's just 2020 alone. That number is going to keep on rising. A third of small business. It's only one year of this bullshit we're supposed to be worrying about <laughs> the delta variant irrelevant to the economy as well daniel said trying to fix unemployment with currency purchasing power is not a growth policy just saying we're gonna pay people more isn't actually creating more jobs it's just making the rest of the money not matter think about it your landlord is gonna say all right rent is 15 dollars an hour worth it's stealing from future generations. Think about what you're doing to the money. This is the whole next chapter is about modern monetary theory. And these Keynesian economists at the helm, they're like, wait, so we could just keep printing money? Well, now nations will never go poor. Eureka, modern monetary theory will save us all. Just pay people more. <laughs> if that doesn't sound a little bit fishy to you, you're probably one of those people in a political argument that go, well, we have all these free health care and services. It's not free if the people are paying for it through taxes. The word free does not exist in the game of civil programs. Think about the true cost of bailouts. It's destroying purchasing power, confiscating wealth from future generations, and devaluing the currency. That's the whole thing about the 2008 bank bailouts. I mentioned nickeled and dimed in the intro. They made us read that in middle school. It wasn't that good. It's just about a waitress who can't make ends meet because the you know Goldman Sachs got bailed out. <laughs> they got $25 billion, but you can't get that $1,400 stimulus. I never got either of those. We got a quote here mid-chapter about the wealth effect, how I said our economy is doing great because DoorDash and Bank of America. The wealth effect of stocks and bonds rising is inexistent for the vast majority of citizens as more than 90% of average household wealth is in deposits. Think about it. Your biggest asset is probably your car and your house. And your wife would be pretty damn pissed if she found out you were gambling the house on the stock market. Like most people's weekend trading fund isn't what they're actually able to parlay into a bigger sum of money. Think about Wall Street bets. <laughs> like out of the 50 millions of dollars that leaked from the hedge funds who have billions of dollars, half of those Reddit bros still lost money. Most of actual functioning members of society, not elite billionaires, have our assets tied up in the things we use. <laughs> yes, the little man made some money, which is rare in the casino of the stock market. I'm saying still, they had to steal from their fellow man. We could all be millionaires. Even the 80s stock market boom, which we've read Liar's Poker, most of the people were still working class, <laughs> getting... Screwed over. I don't know. It's the wealth effect. People like to think we are the millionaire. This is American culture. And think about how much movies have changed. We idolize the Kardashians and lucky rich Asians or whatever that movie was. 
in the 80s, even during the big spender wolf of Wall Street actual era, the rich kid was always the villain. Now no one's proud of being the working man. That's why they call me, they call me the tax slave. We're not going to get anywhere just by printing money (laughs) to tie up this middle part of the chapter here. You see China said that their Bitcoin farming servers overheated. This is the new printing money. You could just mine Bitcoin. (laughs) Why don't you just turn on the air conditioning, China? It's too hot to supply more coins. If people are demanding more coins, it's probably in your best interest to supply it. A lot of this crypto really does throw me for a loop. It's not logical, which money is something you could rely on to follow a formula, which we have equations in Chapter 3, and then Chapter 4 is all about crypto. So wrapping up Chapter 1 here, let's do a little history. Soviet Russia called this type of state takeover of banks and then communication organizations de facto nationalization. I'm sure you guys have been seeing in the news that Blackwater, which is one of the biggest financial institutions in the country, they are buying up entire neighborhoods worth of real estate. Look, uh, Bill Gates, he owns half the farmland over the past two years. This is a de facto state takeover. Look who funds the Gates Foundation. DARPA funds Amazon. Jeff Bezos is shooting himself into space with taxpayer money. It's de facto nationalization. This is not capitalism anymore, people. You are in the dystopia. (laughs) Most important to remember, the government has all the incentives to overspend because its goal is to maximize the budget and then increase bureaucracy as a means of power. You just got to keep feeding the Leviathan, whether it is in GDP or in debt. You know, he said debt is the new function of growth as long as your presence is growing then you are a legitimate country and you're able to steal from people it's not that bad guys once we learn to love big brother the government will be part of our mind body and soul (laughs) the government always can blame someone else for their mistakes who lowers interest rates from 10 percent to one percent government and central banks who is blamed for taking excessive risk when it explodes you and me who increases money supply credit flow and then imposes financial repression because savings are too high government and central banks and who is blamed when it explodes the working man from the beginning to the end of time governments can and will print money but what they cannot do is convince you and me it has value always comes back down to the community last example for the chapter think about lincoln during the civil war he just started printing greenbacks <laughs> he's like i don't know what whack shit they're up to below the mason dixon line but we just got our own money out here now you know what a buck is why we call a dollar a buck you dry out a deer skin and it was an average trading mechanism for a hundred shekels there we go <laughs> you're scared of the big a getting rid of your daddy government anarchy People are just going to start trading with squirrel pelts and eating mud out in the woods. Does that sound so bad? (laughs) Our creature comforts are worth Big Brother spying on us. I know for many of us it is. Crypto basically is our own form of greenbacks, a decentralized currency. 
don't know, man, when it erupts again in eight years, you could bet your bottom dollar that the consensus will be blame the markets, hedge funds, the bad apples are responsible. What we need is more intervention and government regulation. <laughs> That's what happens every single time. It's like a casino. We're chumps. We lose on the way up and on the way down. Come on and take a free ride. Come on and be a tax slave. Daniel says, final quote for the chapter, It is a clever Machiavellian system to end free markets and disproportionately benefit governments through the most unfair of competitions, having unlimited access to money and credit and none of the risk and passing the bill to everyone else. <laughs> it's diabolically evil. It's so damn cool. Chapter 2, Not So Modern Monetary Theory. One's by Arcadasius Sierran. <laughs> what are these written by Greek immortals? Arcadasius starts us by saying the key idea of modern monetary theory is that the government that controls the issuance of its currency cannot go bankrupt because it can always issue money to pay off its creditors. As I said before, wait, we're never going to go bankrupt again. We could just print more money. This entire chapter is about the kid in Monopoly who would be the banker. The entire game stops working if the banker is hiding money underneath the table. And as long as you could just pull out 500s from underneath the board, you could keep paying off your debt. <laughs> when did Monopoly come out? The 20s? FDR was busting nuts. He wasn't busting trusts, like he said. After JFK... Zero presidents ran on the idea of busting up these giant banks with unlimited funds. So this, I'm saying in the past 50 years, my ideas are going to sound alien because we've completely forgot about them. <laughs> Since the state has a monopoly on banknotes, it cannot be insolvent like private individuals. Like You're not allowed to default on your student loan debt, but after 2008, Goldman can default on a $25 billion bailout. <laughs> this is why we hear about hyperinflation. It is insolvency. And we're just paying that debt off. Since the 60s, like I said, Kennedy's gone. No one's trying to dissolve these deep think tanks. Now we could just run with modern monetary theory. Any country that doesn't go with it, Venezuela, Iran, we have to wipe out this isn't new to people who have studied the Cold War and the current flash wars, which we got into in the future of violence. Nobody's allowed to be on the petrodollar because the U.S. dollar is the way we're able to bank this. It has to all be funny money or else it doesn't work because there is a way that it, you could actually ground the equation then with a hard asset. Like if we keep printing money, then we could just keep buying more oil, right? If the money printer machine never runs out of ink, the world will then never run out of oil because we could keep buying it. <laughs> this is like five-year-old logic. I'm not going to do the example of the shells on the beach, but you can't just keep bringing shells to devalue the currency. Ten trillion shells a year. <laughs> Under modern monetary theory, there should never be a crisis. Like, we are just doing this Keynesian theory, but still... How come the price of meat and gas is going up? Are they not printing it in the right place? Who is the money going to? 
the Journal of International Money and Finance showed nations approaching sovereign defaults by current denominations can go bankrupt. 2020 economists are taking a look at this theory we've been running with since the 60s and are saying it's completely illegitimate. <laughs> Obviously, no one really cares about economics. I just It's interesting to see how long it could go on for. This happened to Russia in 1998, Turkey in 1999, Argentina 2001. We have empirically falsified modern monetary theory. That's like people saying socialism just needs one more good try. There was this Fitch article in the journey of money and finance. It explained governments sometimes decide not to inflate away its own debt as inflation is economically and politically costly. So government will willingly let its currency go to shit because it knows like that's a way where you can store your debt <laughs> and then hopefully you could bring it back down. But you never really see the cost of things. When I was a kid, a candy bar was $1. That was like our standard of trading. And I don't think it'll ever go back down. When I'm 50, a candy bar will be 100 pesos, buck coin, whatever we're calling it at that point. Soviet Russia fell under this model, Turkey, Argentina. In times of mass inflation, all of these countries used heavy amounts of distractions. <laughs> America, as I'm saying, you're seeing different prices at the pump. You're also seeing UFOs in the news, flus, fires, shortages. I think back to the end of the inflating Roman Empire. They weren't just pinning uh, prisoners against each other at the Colosseum. They would just bring slave girls into the middle and let the lions eat innocent women. How much more debaucherous can our reality TV get than Dr. Pimple Popper? <laughs> I don't think we can degrade any further. Think back to World War One, World War Two. civilians would buy war bonds, and this backed the debt economy. So it kind of goes into modern monetary theory. Currently, government's largest creditors are commercial banks. So then who is the government beholden to? We are not the ones who are saying, okay, we're going to pull out of Vietnam. It's the bankers now, I'm saying. If the government stopped paying its debts, it would have a negative effect on the banks and their credit action, which then ricochets through the economy, and your mortgage is then increasing. The trickle-down takes place <laughs> not through billionaires spending money, but actually through credit action. It's pretty wild. Ignoring the fundamentals of economics is just going to hurt you in later ways it's like eating junk food and just because you don't see you're getting fat around your heart that doesn't mean it doesn't count <laughs> i'm trying to make it make sense but i said it's been falsified this shit should be called postmodern monetary theory that's a high level academic joke you know postmodern theory is what they're teaching in universities it's the philosophy that there is not one objective truth because white people have to be more racist than other races. There cannot be one objective truth in money. Human Smith pointed out in 1700, banknotes, bonds, or equal to electronic records today, these things are not real wealth. It could prop up your economy in the time of a war. <laughs> we should probably lay off the Dogecoin.
the claim that modern monetary theory is the safest system is a state of obliviousness. Let's go to chapter three. Central banks are propping up stock prices. This one's by Thorsten Polier. <laughs> what are these names? I didn't know Thurston Waffles cared about sound money. <laughs> Financial markets seem to have a great deal of confidence in the effectiveness of central bank monetary policy. By bringing interest rates down, the economies keep expanding and asset prices keep rising. We got to go to the nitty gritty. What is the actual relation between interest rates and asset prices? Go for the Gordon Growth Model, Econ 101. Stock price equals D over I minus G. D equals dividend, I is interest rate, G is profit growth. If you can make profit growth go up with a low interest rate, it'll make your dividends grow. All the variables are based on each other, math. When interest rates grow, stock prices decrease. If you remember from um, Liars Poker, Salomon received 3% loans from the Fed and then sold it at 6% interest rates. You can see how this would affect and modify the profit growth to an artificial degree because the money already has a 3% skew from its original minting. Name of the chapter, central banks are propping up stock prices. They're definitely propping up interest rates. Think about GameStonk or when Elon props up some friggin' cryptocurrency. Some other CEO comes in and slam dumps on all the other <laughs> investors. A slam dump? That's got to be a new investing term. Elon Musk and GameStonk. They're freaking setting up fake prices and then people buy those prices which make it legitimate. It's the alley-oop slam dump. This is what the Fed is doing on a really large scale with the biggest banks. They're propping up stock prices. It's not that hard then to buy a certain amount of shares in Disney and just keep certain organizations propped up. From a Keynesian viewpoint, one may argue... Well, lower interest rates trigger new spending, and this should increase profits. The problem here, once again, money spent isn't value created. Like I said before, it's good to exchange money between hands. It makes the currency legitimate. It's not actually making people richer overall. So these artificially low interest rates or stock prices keep unprofitable businesses alive which then makes it harder for better producers to gain market shares it's impossible to get your foot in the door when there's this mcdonald's gets propped up on every single exit on every highway think about the smartphone industry we could have longer battery lives more advanced cheaper smartphones but huawei is banned in the united states of america because <laughs> there can only be pepsi coke Samsung versus Apple. It's um, not a free market. We are keeping unprofitable businesses alive. That's the furthest thing from capitalism you can get. We are actually closer to socialism at this point. <laughs> you know? Oh, jeez, man. You really could have got your stimulus check if people got off of fucking Netflix last year. 
Look at France right now. <laughs> They're being told you're not allowed to go to a bar unless you have the monthly subscription for booster shots. <laughs> like, it's getting to that point here. You could have had $2,000 a month if you just got your ass off of the couch in 2020. 2021, we might be able to get away with no social credit system. 2022, Jesus, man, you're going to have to pay a tax for breathing air. When you get deep into these subsidations, <laughs> you see how restrictive the market already is. Needless to say, a decline in stock prices is going to be a drag on other good prices, so I'm not here hoping for everything to crash and burn and fail. We could just dissolve the leech. That's obviously not the answer people are looking for. The answer within the system currently... <laughs> I joked about it earlier in the show, negative interest rates. They are calling for zero-bound nominal interest rates. <laughs> You've ever seen the Winnie the Pooh meme, where in the first picture he looks like a schlub, in the second picture he's in a suit and a tuxedo with a monocle. The first picture it says, negative interest rates. Second picture, zero-bound nominal interest rates. Usually when you borrow money, you owe that person money for spotting you. But the Federal Reserve is just saying we're going to give you money. And then every month you have that money, we're going to pay you more for it. When Goldman Sachs does get $25 billion just for funsies, they usually have to invest it into small businesses to then make that money grow. But with zero-bound nominal interest, you could just keep that money in your offshore account and then that money will keep on growing <laughs> this would certainly not stop the credit pyramid from coming crashing down <laughs> the housing market comes down in a similar fashion so who should receive this newly issued money you know should it go to the hands of the consumers the entrepreneurs the banks the government or maybe all of them should get some of the newly issued money how much money should be issued should it be early or later in the month? Should everyone get the same amount? What is the proper principle for distributing new quantities of money? Welcome to socialism. These literally are the questions being asked at the highest level. You don't ask these questions in a free market. Artificially low interest rate policy is a self-defeating argument. This isn't even as tough as modern monetary theory. Basically going to do for chapter 3... Number four here is called Why the Government Hates Cash by Joseph T. Salerno. April of 2021, it was announced that Greece was imposing a surcharge for all cash withdrawals from bank accounts to deter citizens from clearing out their accounts. Bank runs are not allowed in systems that are close to the edge. Black Tuesday in the U.S. of A, 1930 Great Depression, they closed all the banks down and said, we need to keep the money in the system so that it still has value. The Greeks now have to pay one euro per thousand euros that they withdraw. This is one-tenth of a percent. Oh, not a big deal, right? The principle at work is an extremely big deal because what they're in effect doing is breaking the exchange rate between a unit of a bank's deposit and their currency. So if you put money into the bank, it's not like you get a dollar for every thousand you put in. The exchange rate is only in favor 
of the state. <laughs> like, think about when you go to the airport and every time you travel, whether you're going to the UK or from the UK, it's always a negative exchange rate. How is that possible? This rate per thousand is one of the anti-cash policies that mainstream economists in the U.S. have vigorously been pushing for. Along with the cost of inflation, every dollar you withdraw eventually is going to be worth 90 cents, just like in the Greek system. You hear about the Greek economy? They are not doing good. This is not working over there. It's working if you're trying to hmm, implement socialism. This chapter gets more interesting, and you've been hearing about the war on cash. It's ramping up in every possible situation for no good reason. This just in. Money is a vector of disease. Even though the CDC says Bovid can't transfer via surfaces. It all started really with the Bank Security Act in the 1970s, the war on cash. They passed a law which required financial institutions in the U.S., to assist U.S. government agencies in detecting and preventing money laundering. So just in the name of preventing money laundering, which usually takes place on the books, by 1969 they were able to uncirculate $500 bills, $1,000, $10,000 bills, and there were even $100,000 bills in circulation. These ones specifically, banks had to make clearings between one another. Think about having a $100,000 bill. <laughs> I would rob a man for one piece of paper. The U.S. government stopped issuing these, and they had to, again, have them all withdrawn by 1969. Same year, Nixon talked to a man on the lunar surface without a communication delay. It's not like we could do that today. We reverse-engineered the technology, just like we kind of reverse-engineered our economy. <laughs> We're at, like, the beginning stages Modern-day Swedish cities, for public bus tickets, they no longer can be purchased by cash. You have to purchase these things in advance through your cell phone with a pre-made profile. So they're making money off your data and then off of you booking with a surcharge service fee online. Swedish central banks have been trying to demonize cash, calling it a bad habit that the country needs to gradually cut back on, even though their biggest economies say, cash it's going to survive like the crocodile it's not going anywhere think about though if you were trying to phase out cash just put on your evil hat for a minute you would overprint the money and also try to convince people that cash is dirty and arcane and that's how you usher in this new digital system i'm telling you data is just as valuable as money itself Wrapping up Sweden, three of the four major banks over there have more than two-thirds of their offices no longer accepting cash or paying out in cash. You'd have to transfer your money to another institution to be able to see your money. If Bank of America and Chase did this, we would be cyberpunk in 48 hours. <laughs> All it takes is the ATMs to go off for one day. In France in 2012... They restricted the use of cash from a maximum of 3,000 euros to 1,000 per exchange. <laughs> Can't even buy a friggin' guillotine off the books. The justification was terrorists use cash. Terrorists also use toilets. We shouldn't do that. Fucking tanky logic over here. Wait, wait, wait. 
terrorists also have babies. We gotta give up our babies to the state. The Swiss government has banned all cash payments of more than 100,000 francs. This includes transactions for watches, real estate, precious metal, cars. Switzerland is so 1980s when it comes to laundering money. Apple has been offshoring money in Ireland. You gotta get more creative nowadays. JP Morgan and Chase, current day, according to Forbes, are the world's third largest public company. They receive $25 billion a year in bailout loans from the U.S. Treasury, and they received a undisclosed amount in March of 2021. <laughs> and Chase began restricting the use of cash in their selected markets. We've seen these like Chase markets throughout town. The hell does the bank have to also own the central market? Well, now they don't accept cash at the bazaar. Chase is even going as far to prohibit the storage of cash in all of their safety deposit boxes. They're saying you're only allowed to store collectibles. <laughs> the frig is the point of even having a safe there then. It's ended on some creepy Fed antics. In 2009, the Fed announced that a year from the date of the announcement, it intended to pick a numeral from 0 to 9. Okay, so this is an official report because they're saying numeral instead of a number. They're picking a numeral from 0 to 9 out of a hat. And all currency with a serial number ending in that numeral would instantly lose status as a legal tender. <laughs> You're wondering, with inflation, well, what? Is money just vanishing into thin air? Yes. Yes, it is. They fucking just pick a random number out of a hat and start taking that money out of circulation. If you leave your money hostage in a bank account, it starts to lose value due to inflation. If you take your money out on the streets, it could run the risk of being confiscated. <laughs> How do you win? We're going to find out in a couple chapters. Second to last year, chapter five is called Liberalism and Neoliberalism. One's written by Ryan McMacken. He says, It is possible that there is no term more abused in modern political discourse than liberalism. It's originally meant to mean the ideology of free trade and limited government. Since the 1930s, the anti-capitalist wing of the left has adopted this term and reversed its meaning. Within 70 years, a political term can completely switch meaning. You see what we're getting into this chapter? Liberalism never quite lost its correct meaning in most of the world. In Spanish-speaking countries, they call it liberalismo, which means the ideology of free trade and free markets. And maybe that's just what we need in the U.S., dos liberalismos. It was only recently until American right-wingers somehow pulled off the pejorative of lefty. It's a slang now to call someone their identified party. The introduction of the word progressive has been phased in over the past 20-ish years, and it's an implication of a higher degree of liberalism. Libertarians used to call themselves liberals, but this word has been, again, hijacked the past 50 years more so, and along with it, killed the philosophy. This is what happens over times, <laughs> like read some Malcolm X, the assassination of ideas, progressive movements, actual progressiveness can be co-opted 
and then you insert the word progressive <laughs> so no one ever wants to start a movement again. Wikipedia claims neoliberalism stands for laissez-faire economic liberalism. It's like word soup at this point. But apparently the lefties are supposed to stand for laissez-faire markets. We're left with like a postmodern neoliberal. And the funny thing here is a neoliberal is technically a slang term. If you watch a news show and a right-wing guy calls someone else a neoliberal, they kick him off the show. But they could call that guy a friggin' alt-right Alex Jones conspiracy theorist the entire time. You're not allowed to slang the left, but you could slang the right. I'm just pointing out indifferences here. I don't really care. What I'm trying to get across here is the term has lost its meaning. The internet is starting to call like the progressive movement the shit libs. It's just not a coherent group. So you really can't have a coherent conversation or analysis of this quote-unquote group. So let me go back to that news pundit example. If you're not being left enough on Don Lemon's show, he'll call you alt-right. But if you go too left, he will call you a Bernie Sanders progressive. And like Bernie Sanders was the populist movement of the left. This is the most power that you can gain as one man in society. He had the support of the people. Those people would have friggin' jumped off a cliff for free health care. And this guy kowtowed to the DNC and reeled it in back into neoliberal war politics. This is what we have with the Biden regime. We have lefties championing jackbooted thugs. They're <laughs> How can you call yourself a lefty when you want SWAT teams to come to people's house and make their body not their choice? You see what I'm saying here? Every 20 years, these fucking two parties flip-flop sides. That sounds a whole lot like a Christian conservative thing to do. The hell are we... Every 20 years, these things flip, and it is artificial so it makes it not productive to have a conversation about the labels what's being done with this chapter very well by ryan mcmacken is saying that these are non-coherent terms fucking george washington said it more artfully in one sentence beware the two-party system we're going left and right and backwards but we're not moving forward with this dumb paradigm like i said in the beginning of the show in the UK, the Labour Party would be aligned politically to a Ronald Reagan economic free market guy. The fucking political spectrum, the modern day one, is a horseshoe. It's not even as good as that political compass that people use for memes. That thing is very rudimentary as well. We need like a eight-circuit personality test to actually get to the bottom of how you think humans should self-govern or be tyrannically ruled over <laughs> but whatever we could try to entertain these in further books this is why i shy away from like kamala harris's book that just came out yeah it's so interesting you went through so much adversity don't we want to hear about ernest shackleton surviving on an iceberg for two years that's real adversity <laughs> complaining about being called a neoliberal it's not really piquing my interest here 
But it is interesting over decades how politicians do not stand for ideologies. You need to look for some sort of an academic or one particular ideologue represent an idea to its conclusion. <laughs> Just a bunch of people getting rich off of movements up there on Capitol Hill. The IMF has members who call themselves liberal, neoliberal, anti-liberal. None of these people uphold the standards of laissez-faire markets, as Wikipedia would say. Let's go to chapter 6, our final one. What would Mises do? This guy was a socialist, a philosopher, a political theorist, and an economist. Mises was a man of old Europe, born before the Great Wall, the fall of the Habsburgs in Austria. I've never been, but Austria, you look at pictures, have those gigantic palaces, the most regal-looking castles. Everything is lined with gold. They've been rocking that Austrian economics. They have all the gold <laughs> stored on their plates in hard assets. This guy, Mises, lived in like five different worlds. He died in 1973 in New York. But even that is a long way away from a woke America 2021 Brooklyn pitting old economists against current calamities in the market would be like dropping Babe Ruth on the diamond today with a bunch of juiced up South American bailouts for the sake of the analogy. If we think of a scholar like an artist or a musician, how are you supposed to weigh their work? Is it more valuable in late life because their work is representing a more developed worldview or like a musician? Does a economist's first book carry the weight of a rapper's freshman album type of deal. This guy Mises wrote 20 books and hundreds of articles. It's hard to find what was his most effective work. Maybe what he won the Nobel Prize for, Human Action, which is what we're going to have on the show eventually. And one of his underlings was F.A. Hayek, who wrote Road to Serfdom. So we've got those two books in a similar vein coming up. This final chapter was written by the guy who put the anthology together, Jeff Deist, and he bought up one of Mises's very overlooked books, The Marginal Revolutionaries. This was about the history of Austrian economics and the war of ideas that had to take place to keep them anti-socialist. <laughs> Even like a James Madison and Thomas Jefferson were opposite ends of the spectrum you could look at one of them as capitalist and one of them as socialist if you're going to have a government it takes actual work on the floor to keep the thing as pure as you set it up to be the most recent winner of the nobel prize in economics dr gary beckler listed his favorite economist as Ludwig von Mises and this guy went to the University of Chicago top economic university modern day this guy wrote about Paul Vockler his fed fund rates of 20 percent was like I said how failing businesses are getting bailed out this would be like one-fifth of entrepreneurs that go into shark tank no matter how stupid their ideas they get a bid one-fifth fund rate at the fed it's a pretty good time to be <laughs> creating the next Enron. This current king of economics who's writing about Paul Vockler, he said, what's called quantitative easing isn't banking at all. It's purely political 
machinations. If someone woke up Mises from a cryo chamber, it'd be like friggin' bizarro world. Up is down, debt is value, money has become a political phenomena. I hope money becomes super duper politicized so that the most progressive thing you could do is give all your money away. <laughs> you look at the progressives are already pushing the narrative the worst thing you could do for the world and mother nature is have a child. <laughs> Mind your carbon footprint, plebe. Wrapping up Mises' young life, he's saying, a businessman could embark on a journey from Vienna to London for less than $10, see the world, know what the economies are all about, our horizons are being broadened, travel is becoming more expensive with mandatory quarantines on every end, people are sneaking out of hotels in Austria by looping bedsheets together, this is the state of the world. And for the last five minutes while you have your economist hat on, take a step back and look at the trends of the world. Ludwig said, the ineradicable craving that compels us to seek happiness and stability is the same craving that authority has to keep on growing. We keep on feeding this beast. It's only going to keep on getting greedier and greedier. That's going to do it, ladies and gentlemen, for Anatomy of the Crash. Thank you, Jeff Beast, for putting this beauty together. Fun topic, fun show. We'll definitely be coming back to the Mises Institute. Hope you guys like the program. Make sure you're checking out the Patreons for all the bonus content we got going over there. Next week on the show, keeping it rolling along and definitely switching up the pace. We have Bushcraft 101 by Dave Canterbury. He is an ex-History Channel show host, a swamp rat. He hosted Dual Survival, Dirty Rotten Survival. We are going through the most basic skills you need to rough it out in the woods. The more you know, the less you need. We're going into hunting, fishing, trapping, shelter building, recreation, and passing the time as you signal for help deep in the woods. I want to thank you, the listener, for coming back for another special edition. Keep your heads out of your ass out there. Things are heating up, and we're going to keep throwing down the bangers week after week. My name is Nick Muniz. See you all in seven short days. Later.